0: Uh, when we when we had our, our special guest flying around earlier. Some of you didn't even notice, thankfully. I uh, immediately started to run through all the things that could happen if this wasp continues to bother us. And I knew I had seen some fly swatters somewhere. And so I went and got a couple. Um, and maybe we need to have, like, weekly... Uh, Swatters. Yeah, where's the extermination committee? I'm going to set them right here, and y'all, if we have another guest, y'all can come get them, okay? If you're a human guest, we're glad you're here, okay? You will not be swatted. I want to invite you to go back to First Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. We're going to continue in chapter 4 as we've been continuing in the whole book under the title More and More Steadfast Toward the Day of Christ. And to get you caught up on where we are in the book, uh, Paul has, has expounded on their wonderful relationship. His relationship with this church, now he wants to be there and continue his ministry among them. How they reciprocate that love how they want him to be there. They want his influence. They want his ministry, but it doesn't seem to be happening. And so, his very short time with them at the beginning, it turns out, is what God needed from Paul to lay that foundation that would produce in this local church exactly what he intended to do. And Paul sort of wrapped up that first part of the book at the end of chapter three with a benediction of sorts. Kind of sounded like a prayer but he he prioritizes their abounding love. He says their love ought to abound as he says inside and outside of this congregation of saints. And he goes on in chapter 4 turning his attention to more practical instruction. As you recall the first 3 chapters, he didn't really instruct anything. It was all just sort of like the the beauty of of having relationships in the body of Christ and even even with other churches and, and with missionaries and all the benefits there. Now he has turned his instruction or turned his attention to specific instruction. And he gave some very explicit instructions last week. If you were here or you li- were able to listen online, you heard a little bit about the things he had to say regarding sexual immorality. Now he went into a good bit of detail to describe what they needed to hear. And this week... He sort of hits on the next measure of instruction that he feels like they need. But even in this instruction, he's like, as we're going to read in just a moment, you have no need of anyone to write to you about this matter. So they needed his instruction on sexual immorality. Now he says, hey, you're doing really well at this. So I want to give you just a bit more encouragement so that you will continue pressing toward that That more and more that we've been looking for in this book. So I invite you to read with me 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 9 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help again in the matter of understanding and applying your word Help us not to just be hearers, but doers. And even still, not just doers, but doers that desire ultimately to look like Christ. So let us be those faithful servants today in regard to your word. Send your spirit to illumine our hearts and minds. Show us Jesus. He is the one we need. And we pray in his name. Amen. The title this morning is Ordinary Christianity. Ordinary Christianity. And it seems on occasion we need sermons like this that simply say, hey, keep it up. Keep it up. Keep doing what you're doing. Because otherwise we we tend to get lax on the basics, don't we? We forget about the basics of the Christian life when it comes to our faith and practice. And yet... I don't want to assume that you are one of the ones that's doing so well, loving one another. It's very likely that some of us are not doing as well as we'd like to think when it comes to these basic matters. So the word of God today may be for some a bit of a kick in the pants, but no matter how well we're doing, no matter where we are on that spectrum of brotherly love, as he mentions here, the text is clear. Let's do it more and more. Let's go deeper. Let's go wider. Let's go higher in our brotherly love in the Christian faith. Let's grow stronger, more steadfast as we look to the return of our Savior. So don't give up saints. Don't set aside that high calling. We hear these these words and we're like, yeah, right? I'm preparing and I'm like, yes, yes. This is exciting. The Christian faith is exciting. I'm pumped up about following Jesus and sharpening one another and worshiping with you. I felt so underprepared today. You know, no matter how I'm feeling about how the day's going to go, I'm always excited. Always excited to see you face to face. And we can get pumped up, right? We can hear those calls and those rally cries, and we can get real excited about loving one another. But then we read, and it's like, okay, love one another. Okay, I'm excited. I'm excited. Okay, live quietly. That's not real exciting. Preacher, live quietly, he says. Mind your own affairs, he says. Go to work. Come home, etc., etc., etc. A new Monday, a new week, a new set of challenges, a new month, a new year. And all of a sudden, we're not as excited about the Christian life as we were. Ordinary Christianity. Ordinary Christianity. What he talks about here is that brotherly love and that way of life that is simply normal for followers of Jesus. And he says, in this ordinary Christian life, as we discover today, those looking on, those outsiders, they will take note. The theme today The ordinary Christian life yields extraordinary interest from outsiders. The ordinary Christian life yields extraordinary interest from outsiders. And you guys know me well enough. Those of you who do know me well, if you're a member of the church, you know full well, like I love the nitty gritty of the Christian life. And I don't do the rally cries and I don't, you know, pick up the pom poms and and try to get you going. And so texts like this, that's like my wheelhouse because I'm as normal as they come. You may be like, no, you're not. (laughs) Texts like this, they remind us that the Christian life is not about the big impact the world-changing lifestyle. It's about the normal stuff. And the Word of God tells us today that your normal Christian life is exactly what God will use in his kingdom. So no, you don't need to be the, the Adoniram Judson or whoever it is. You don't need to be that person who we read about in history books to make the impact that God has made you for. In fact, he says in these verses right here, that shouldn't be your aim. The ordinary Christian life yields extraordinary interest from outsiders. I want to give you two encouragements, hopefully quickly this morning. Number 1, let's grow our witness through brotherly love. Let's grow our witness through brotherly love. You know, in our land where everybody professes to be a Christian, it seems talk can be very cheap. The real question of who we are and what we are will be answered not only in verbally subscribing to Christianity, but also supremely in loving one another. As we heard from John earlier, they will know you By your love for one another. And so we ought to have this love among us saints in a way. We see this played out in a way that reflects heaven itself. And so the love, the brotherly love we have is a foretaste of the kingdom that is to come. Now, as you've been following along in 1 Thessalonians, Paul maintains this family vibe. And it's still here. He talks about the local church in family terms because that's what it is. It's going to last forever, this this spiritual family. And so this word brotherly love here is, is intentional to continue that family theme. It's a word that was used by both Greek and Jewish writers, according to Martin, to describe love within a biological family, not within religious groups. And so by calling to the church to more and more brotherly love, Paul is saying you should show the world in the local church the kind of love that they want in their own families. That seems like a bit much, Pastor. You know, every time we encounter these heavy calls, these weighty calls to family life in the church, I'll walk away wondering, like, like, am I, too, am I too hard on this? Am I, am I pushing our people to, to more than, than what, what is needed? Am I asking too much of you? And you know, every time, it's almost like the Spirit takes me back and takes us back to another text where he says it again. And so the Holy Spirit only confirms in me every time that we're on the right track, and he leads me ultimately to double down on it. And so when I talk about family in the church, that is exactly what I mean. We're not like family. We're not something that resembles a family. We are God as father, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus, a relationship that supersedes your blood relationships to your human brothers and sisters. Your biological family is just the foretaste of what will be in the people of God, together with God, forever. And He mentions this brotherly love, knowing that the Thessalonian believers were doing it well. He says, you have no need of anyone to write to you. And we heard last week, hey, you needed that writing. This week, you're doing a good job with brotherly love. He says their brotherly love deserves commendation here. What does he say about it? For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. A few things we can say right here. Brotherly love is, first of all, God taught. That's the word in the Greek. God taught. It may actually be a word that Paul made up. I love that. You can't find it in any other writings. Paul's that guy that just makes up words. He's that guy that's on Scrabble, and you're like, that ain't a word. I just made it up. It's really a a word that captures a prophetic prediction from Isaiah 54 13 and other places. Here's what it says. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. And Jesus echoes the promise in his ministry in John chapter 6 and 45. He says, it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. And he goes on, he says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And then immediately we we begin to see the, the role of the Holy Spirit as teacher come into play and then work itself out in the rest of the New Testament. So, let's connect the dots real quick. Remember the situation at Thessalonica. Paul wanted to be there to continue teaching them. He wasn't able to get there and was anxious about their state. But he was gladly relieved by the report that Timothy brought about how well this church Was doing, And so what do we say to this? God will undoubtedly bring about his purposes in the life of the local church. As far as Paul could tell, he's like, man, I'm the answer here. God send me. I can teach them. I can grow them. I can make them faithful. That's my ministry. Let me do my ministry. But that's not what happened. And we don't know exactly what happened on the ground, if we could say it. That way in this local church. But Paul is assured on these words right here that their love comes from God himself. He acknowledges, hey, I didn't do it, but God did it. We can conclude that pastor teachers were growing up in their midst who took on the mantle of opening God's word and explaining its meaning. Which is normal New Testament church practice. Now, I want to caution you here. There are some in our day who want to cast off the need to be under regular teaching of the Word of God. And so, when somebody, somebody says, and you will hear it if you haven't already heard it, all I need is the Holy Spirit and my Bible, then you can help them better understand. You can help them learn that the church, according to the Bible, is the pillar and the buttress of truth. You can help them recognize the need for spiritual leaders, for pastors, for elders, for overseers. You help them learn that God has granted teachers to the local church, Ephesians 4, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, gifting each one for the good of the whole church. I've seen it over and over and over again Pastor Kyle as well In our ministry, meeting all kind of folks Everybody Who says It seems, everybody who says All I need is the Holy Spirit in my Bible You can guarantee that they are Caught up in some crazy Doctrine They're caught up in something Kyle and I could tell you a lot Of stories But you know what? The regular teaching of the word of God is the means by which God has kept his people doctrinally sound for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. This is what he has designed. They are taught by God. They know this love by their fellowship with God. So he says, brotherly love, first off, is God taught. Secondly, brotherly love is kingdom aimed. He says right here, that is what you are doing, this brotherly love. That is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So their mentality here was not us for and no more. They wanted to see their love grow and expound, abound outside of even their own fellowship. Y'all remember the book? If you're not a reader, maybe you have heard a little bit about the book of Mice and Men, and you may recall that there is a character, Lenny, who loved to pet soft things. You know, at the beginning of the book, he had this one soft thing. It used to be alive. And now it was dead. It was a mouse in his pocket. And so he had this once alive thing. But then because he was a little too rough with it, it died. You know what happens? You know what happens when we have brotherly love and we try to contain it? We try to just, let's not mess up what we have. Let's not mess up what we have. We end up killing it. With brotherly love, we can't contain what God intends to abound, or it will be stripped from us. These saints didn't keep their love to themselves. They loved so well that it overflowed to all the local churches and the whole region. It says, once again, here. We don't get the details, but Paul knew about it firsthand. And you can imagine in the midst of persecution with the geographical location of Thessalonica, they likely had numerous opportunities to show hospitality to others in the faith among many other ways they could show their love. This love testified to something that was bigger than themselves. It was bigger than their local church. It was bigger than their local needs. So I would ask you, church, Do we have that kind of kingdom mentality when it comes to our brotherly love? As much as we pray for other local churches, missionaries across the world, as much as we promote mission beyond this local church, even still, have we adopted the mindset that carries our brotherly love to fellow saints far and wide? Look into your prayer life. Look at your prayer life. Is it big like the kingdom? Don't neglect. Don't neglect the saints that are sitting next to you. But remember those who are also on the front lines of our neighborhoods, in our cities, even in other cities and other countries. Those who are persecuted. And the Bible actually says in Hebrews, remember the saints that are in prison. We ought to have that brotherly love manifested at the very least in our prayer life. But it ought to hit us in where we go on mission. It ought to hit us in the wallet as we can support those going on mission. That brotherly love is kingdom aimed. But thirdly, we see from the text, brotherly love is ever practiced ever practiced y'all like my hyphenated words today i was a little proud of that it's ever practiced we urge you brothers to do this more and more you know there's a one main reason that i enjoy playing golf some of you are like oh man he talked about golf last week or the week before You really, you can pick up any sport and say this about it. But I love playing golf because there is this perpetual reality that I can be better. I can be better than I was. I'm not very good at golf, just so you know. But, you know, every time I play, I will hit a shot, one or two shots, one or two shots. You can guarantee I'm talking about it to my wife for probably 10 or 15 minutes when I get home. You should have been there, should have seen this shot, right? (laughs) Every round, there's one or two shots. It's, It's like, man, a pro would have hit that like that. You know, we're never going to master brotherly love. You're never going to say, ah, we got it now. No more work to do on brotherly love because you know what's going to happen? Then you go to interact with one another and you realize, hey, this ain't so easy. (laughs) I was doing good until I had to talk to you. (laughs) Uh, See, it's always going to be an opportunity for us to grow this brotherly love. It can't be mastered, we will have a new person to love, a new reason to love, a new obstacle in the way of our love. And so we need to take that challenge from the word of God and then dig your heels into brotherly love. It's ever practiced. It's God taught. It's kingdom made. It's ever practiced. You need to do this more and more. And all of this is set in relation to what the outsiders see. I'm convinced this whole Uh, four verses right here, is one unit. It's set in a relation to what outsiders are seeing among the saints in the local church. They will know, they will know our shared love comes from God. They'll know that our love testifies to something bigger than just our little group of Christians. They'll know that our love doesn't quit. It doesn't get tired. It doesn't say, "Ah, I've had enough of these people. It doesn't peak, and it doesn't peter out. It's that love, like if you're familiar with the Jesus storybook Bible, the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. So let's love in those ways that outsiders who look on the love that we have, they want this kind of love. And Paul doesn't stop with love, though. He sheds light on other aspects of our public witness and tells us that we will gain respect from outsiders. So secondly, let's gain respect through ordinary life. Verses 11 and 12, I'll read them again. After he says, But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, verse 11, And to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let's gain respect through ordinary life. And he adds just a few more exhortations regarding the Christian life onto this brotherly love and connected with this brotherly love, first off, live quietly. Live quietly. Aspire to this. One commentator says, this is make it your ambition. So, Christian, hear me, especially if you're anywhere near my age, okay? Rather than spending your energy on trying to make a name for yourself, God says, why don't you aim to fly under the radar? To not be noticed. Why don't you for a minute just forget the views and the follows and the likes? That is not the real world anyway. Cultivate the calm life. Hebert comments here that the word refers to, that is, um, quietly, to live quietly. It's it's infinitive. It's actually a verb. To live quietly. He says that the word here refers to silence after a speech. Some of you are like, I wish we could get there quickly. To the after speech. Some of you, y'all didn't get that. I thought that was funny, okay? I thought it was funny. Sometimes it just doesn't work when you're preaching. Here's here's what he says. It refers to silence after a speech. It refers to rest after labor. It refers to peace after war. It refers to peace of mind, he says. Tranquility. Tranquility. So I'll ask you, Christian, your ambition. The thing for which you toil, does it matter in the long run? Why are you toiling for temporal things? And it seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? It seems counterintuitive to live quietly. If you want to make a difference in the kingdom... Oh, we can think of a lot of things that we'd like to hear, but if you want to make a difference in the kingdom, Paul says, then try to go unnoticed. Yeah. Hey, if people don't have a clue who you are or who we are, but people are learning about Christ and disciples are being made, yeah. then we're doing a good job. Yeah. But you know, deep in the muck of worldly self-promotion, Christians Can be the absolute worst. But you know what the kingdom says? The kingdom of Christ. It says to be the greatest in the kingdom. You need to be the least. To be the first in the kingdom. You got to be the last. To attain the heights of faith. You got to have faith like a child. And we begin to see. How Jesus himself purchased This people that would live quietly. This people that would live quietly. You know how he did it? It wasn't a campaign. It wasn't look at me. It was I'm coming to lay down my life. You want to follow me? He says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Whew! that'll get you a lot of followers, won't it? And they all turned away. And then he looks to the disciples. This is John 6 that we quoted earlier. He looks to the disciples. Are you going to go away too? Twelve people left following him on this occasion. Because he knew what was in the heart of man. He knew they did not want him. They one of the things he could do. He didn't go out on a campaign. Trying to be the king. Oh, he knew he was the king. And he was satisfied in knowing what was coming and it led him to the cross where he would lay down his life he would shed his blood he would rise from the dead and even still they could not believe what he did it's that kind of kingdom that says hey Christian make a difference by living quietly says live quietly secondly in our words mind your business Christian, mind your business. Take care of your responsibilities. Stop meddling in other people's affairs. On the internet, I keep up with a a group, and in this group, somebody posted a picture of their brand new truck, and it was in their driveway. And you could kind of see the the yard behind the truck in the picture. And so there are people who are like, hey, congratulations on your new truck. One guy got on there and was like, as far as I can tell, he had no idea who this was. Like, they weren't friends or anything. Somebody who knows where across the country. He gets on there and says, hey, it's about time to take care of that grass, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I read this and I'm like, where are we? Like, what is going on? Who is this guy? You know what happens when we meddle? We become busybodies. We become busybodies. Y'all listen. This is in 2 Thessalonians. And this pertains very, very closely to what we're saying here. Maybe one day we can do 2 Thessalonians. Maybe directly after First. I don't know. It seems to make sense. When we get there, we're going to expound all these things again. You read the text for today. You, you saw it on the screen. You, you're hearing me preach about it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. That's strong language. Keep away from it. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. We've read about this, right? We've preached about this. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we work night and day that we might, might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Mind your business it manifests itself in a number of different ways but you all saw it i remember when the news of ukraine broke several weeks ago and i read something it was funny but so true it said last week everybody was an expert on vaccines this week everybody is an expert in global politics Look, can we just admit sometimes we don't have all the information? Christian, maybe your best friend can be the words, I don't know. You know, I I don't know. Can we just sit back and let other people do their jobs and handle their business for a change? And when that business becomes your business, then you can handle it like Christ would. You know, I've not been called to pastor some other church. So I don't need to be in their business. I've not been called to pastor everyone on the internet. So I don't feel any responsibility to be a a keyboard warrior on the outsiders or any other Christian for that matter. Saint, all I'll say is, if it's not our business, then revert back to the first one and live quietly. Live quietly. Go unnoticed. Thirdly, work your job. Some of y'all are going to leave here so depressed, man. Live quietly, mind your business, work your job. Wow. Thanks, Pastor. Work your job, Christian. And I need not say anything about the text we just read in Second Thessalonians. And Christian, you may not want to hear it today, but one of the best things you can do in the kingdom of Christ as you live on mission for the Lord himself is to go to work and do a good job. And you may have lost sight of the eternal value of your job your skill, your labor. But at the very least, you know from Scripture that you can work as unto the Lord. You may have a terrible boss. I'm working for God. But you're tempted. Even right now, you're tempted. Well, my job doesn't really matter in the big picture, pastor. R.C. Sproul says to you, Any vocation that meets a need in God's creation can be considered a divine calling. It's not your job that's the problem. It's your view of work that's the problem. So if you're stressing about God's will for your job, just know that your current job is obviously his will for you right now. So I'm telling you, on the basis of God's word right here, Show up and give it your best every day for his glory. And I'll give you a confession. I can't tell you, I have one, one job. I had one job back in the day. When I was young and zealous in the faith and I thought I knew everything. Seems like that was last week, but. I had this one job and I cannot describe how poorly I did on this job. Because I thought I was too good for it. Oh, I've been called to preach, so I am above this. And you know, it was ironic. The way that I carried myself in that job at that time would have disqualified me from pastoral ministry. In that season, undoubtedly, outsiders, outsiders only gained a lower view of Christ by watching me. I repented and I learned some lessons. And maybe you can say, I've been there too. Maybe somebody's there right now. And you just say, man, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I do a terrible job at work. And that needs to change. Paul says, hey, work your job. That's going to do a lot more for the kingdom than you think. Live quietly. Mind your business. Work your job. And then let's gain respect through this ordinary life. This is what he says here. These are the goals. Very briefly. First off, it is a walk. Becoming of Christ. Christ. He says, so that you may walk properly. That is uh, becoming before outsiders. So you get to show the world, you get to show those outsiders what Christ is like in the way that you carry out your ordinary life. He also says, and be dependent on no one. So we can say it this way, a goal here, a dependence only on God. Christians should not be the ones who are leeches on society. Christians should not be the ones who are manipulating the laws and the rules to get personal gain. I've seen this over and over and over again. Well, if we just do this or don't do this, then we get more money from the government. And it seems in this context, when people took the words from Paul's first letter They didn't quite get it. And that's why in the second letter, he said, hey, look, if you don't work, you don't eat. You see what was happening. I'll give you a little context here. What was happening? Then we're done. Promise. What was happening? These people were so looking forward to the return of Jesus that they said, hey, he could come at any time, so I'm just not going to go to work. I'm just going to wait here because he's coming soon, I won't need money when he's here. He'll make all things right. And you know what happened? Who did they begin to depend on? Other people. And not even just other people inside the church. But it's like, "Oh, hey, can you spot me this bread? I mean, Jesus is coming back soon, so it won't matter anyway." "Hey, can you help me out a little bit? I don't I don't currently work." What Paul is saying is that you have to fulfill these responsibilities to show people the kingdom of Christ. Do not forget this. So Christians should not be a drain on society, a drain on the people around them. Now, we need to be careful here because the really like strong-willed, I you know, made a name for myself A southern Christian may be like, well, then that means I don't need to ask anybody for anything. But don't forget what the Word also says. Every occasion that it says one another, bear one another's burdens, rejoice with one another, weep with one another. Christian, you ought to be dependent upon one another Just like the body parts of your body are dependent on one another. We, by God's design, grow and mature through this sharpening. What Paul is saying is that you can't be that person that totally contradicts our Christian work ethic in the world. You can't be that person. We walk in a way that's becoming of Christ, and then we are dependent on God. God. Obviously we see that through his people. Now I want to conclude this way I want to refer to Jesus' high priestly prayer and the way that he talks about what the world will see from his people. Okay, I want to be clear in his prayer he says John 17 9 he's praying to the Father and he says I am praying for them. That is, the believers, the disciples, the followers of Jesus. He says, I am praying for them. He says, I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So we get it. It's clear. Jesus is praying in this high priestly prayer only for people who are redeemed. And then in John 17, 20 and 21, he says, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So as the disciples who he was with, and it's all the disciples who would come through their teaching. Believer, that's you and me. So Jesus is praying for you and me, and he says that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, That they also may be in us. That is that union we have with Christ. Don't lose me here, okay? So that the world, Jesus says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you see? When we walk at God-intended church, the world looks upon us, but you know they know to be true without a doubt, Jesus is sent from the Father. Jesus is sent from the Father. So when outsiders look on our ordinary lives, they may or may not turn to faith in Jesus Christ. That's, that's beyond our control, okay? Yet what they will discover is the truth of Jesus. And they will no longer be worried about what the church is doing. Ah, these people, they're hypocrites. I don't like these people. They say they love, but they don't love. They won't be worried about us anymore. Their concern at that point will be Jesus alone. And they will know that Jesus was sent from the Father to redeem fallen creation and restore all things under his righteous Rain. And it's going to be a terrible day when that unbeliever has to stand before Jesus and say, deep down I knew it to be true, but I wouldn't submit to you. Maybe today you are coming to understand saving faith for the first time. Repent from sin. Believe on Jesus. He says, you will be saved you'll be counted among the saints you have a home in heaven you'll be in the new creation glorified serving god for all eternity ordinary christian life trust that god will turn the eyes of the outsiders toward jesus as we live this Christian life, saints. Let's pray.